0: living and active among us, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our ears to be able to behold what you have for us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. If you're uh, you're new here, my name is Ricky, uh, and I am so glad to see, man, our first service had people, I was expecting, here's what happens, man. If you're from El Paso, uh, if you're not from El Paso, let me me explain what happens. Uh, Rain of any kind is the El Paso and kryptonite. It is, we are unavailable on rainy days. If, if we wake up and it is raining, the plans are canceled for the day. I mean, we are, it's raining, you know? And I remember trying to explain this to people who are new here. They're like, but, but, but it's just raining, you know? Now, obviously, we've had some flooding and stuff like that. You got to be careful. But I just want to commend El Pasoans that are here. Great job, guys. We did it. We got out to church and uh, we survived the rain. So good job the people not from El Paso are like, is, is he joking or is he not joking? It's in the middle. It's right there. Um, it's right there. Well, we're continuing our series on uh, what it means to be an Antioch church. This is kind of a mini series we're part of, we're doing. And we're laying out kind of our vision for the year and for hopefully, God willing, many years to come. Now, we talked last week about being an advancing church and a neighboring church. And here, you know, over the last week, I have read a bunch of headlines of all kinds, uh, political, health, cultural, financial, all this stuff going on in our country, going on in our world. And there's, every day in the newspaper, there are needs that cry out for our attention, right? Financial needs, mental health needs, uh, educational needs, social needs, reconciliation needs, um, political needs. All of these things are crying out for us, vying for our attention and, and, and our involvement. But brothers and sisters... Let's remember, out of all of the many needs in our city and in our country and in our world, no need is greater than our world's need for Jesus Christ in every way, on every level. Jesus is most fundamentally what we need and what our world needs. And so we talked about that last week, that that our desire is to to proclaim and to demonstrate the reality of Jesus in our world today. But how does that happen? It happens through the church. How do we get, uh, how has God seen fit to get Jesus, the message about Jesus and the demonstration of Jesus to the world? It's through the church. Now, what we're going to talk about today, though, is, okay, well, if our world needs Jesus and the way that the vehicle for getting Jesus to the world is the church, how do we make sure we have a church that can do that? Now, my boys uh, have just started, to f- finally, as a dad, I'm excited, they're finally interested a little bit in, the, in cars. Now, we named one of them Ford. I, I felt like that was, like, he was going to be a big car guy. Not, not so much, you know, so... Slight disappointment, but that's okay. It's fine. We'll take it. Um, and so, as they just started to be more interested in cars, um, they, they, this is you, you forget that kids they show up not knowing anything. They just don't know anything. And so, this is what their assumption was initially. When they saw a truck or like an expedition or something massive, they'd be like, "That's a fast car. That's probably the fastest car in the neighborhood." And they would determine fastest car in the neighborhood by size. And then I try to say, well, no, because they're heavy, et cetera, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. So they're like, oh, it's the small ones. Small ones are fast ones. That's, this one's the fastest. It's a Mini Cooper. This is a Fiat. It's the fastest. And I'm like, no, it's, no, it's not. That's okay. And, you know, again, kids don't know anything. So and, and I'm like, no, but, but, but it's, you know, usually sports cars are the fastest, usually. So then they would look for cool cars. That they thought were sports cars and be like, oh yeah, this is the fastest. And we're like, well, maybe not necessarily, right? So you got one neighbor with like an old base level Mustang and then another neighbor who's making a custom tricked out Honda Civic like my money's on the Honda Civic right in that in that race and so i'm trying to explain this to them and finally they're just getting frustrated like well, what but how do you know which car is the fastest and then i i finally was like guys it's the engine the engine determines what's the fastest and then they looked back at me and said dad what's an engine and i said i was like well i failed as a father i this is this is, this is i'm going to I submit my resignation as a father right now. No, but we have some neighbors that that are working on their cars and that one neighbor in particular does a lot of work and and, and rebuilds cars. And so they could see the engine. So finally they understood, oh, that is what determines how fast the car goes ultimately, right? You could be, uh, you can have a tiny car with a huge engine, that thing's going to rip. You can be a big car with a tiny engine, that thing's just going to just just barely chug along, right? What matters is the engine. And in the same way, for the church, if we're gonna be a neighboring church, a gospel-advancing church, a church uh, proclaiming Jesus to the world around us, if that's gonna be true, what matters, is how we do that, is our engine, the internal workings of the church, right? If we wanna have external impact, we need an internal health that continues to drive us forward. Now, this is true. You can have a big church, with a small gospel engine that really doesn't do a whole lot for the kingdom. You can have a small church with a roaring gospel engine inside of it that's doing all kinds of stuff, planting all kinds of churches, and advancing the gospel in all kinds of ways. How then do we as Cross of Grace make sure that what's under the hood is going to advance the gospel in our city and in our world? So we're going to look today at three traits internally inside the church that have to be Uh, present, that have to be, as it were, driving the church forward. And let's review real quickly. Last week, we talked about being an Antioch church, and that means advancing the gospel outside of us, neighboring around us. And then today, we're going to talk about training, interdependence, and one-to-one ministry. And then next week, we're going to talk about being Christ-centered and a hope-filled church. So let's jump in. First, training. Now, we pick up the story in the book of Antioch with when we last left this church in Antioch, the the gospel had gone out uh, in this community, but there weren't any leaders. There were no leaders among them, and so uh, Barnabas is sent by the guys in Jerusalem to help establish the church, and he realizes he needs help, and so he goes out and gets uh, Paul the Apostle, or well, he wasn't Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle, yet he was just Saul from Tarsus, so he goes and gets Saul from Tarsus, and these two men begin the work of establishing the church. Now. Skip ahead, though, back to Acts 13. Look at Acts 13 with me, verse 1. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, plural. Like, oh, here were some of them. Barnabas, okay, we know him. Simeon, who was called Niger, I don't know who that guy is. Lucius of Cyrene, I don't know that guy. And Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. I don't know how that guy got here either. And Saul. So what we're meant to understand is that these men are the leaders of the church, that, that over the year that Paul and Barnabas spent with the church, they helped intentionally to develop and raise up more leaders, right? And, and, and in fact, the church must have had leaders not just kind of at the highest level, but, but a number of leaders, so much so that the church would be in safe hands when in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas leave and go do missionary work. So Paul and Barnabas, one of the effects of their teaching wasn't just helping everyone understand the Bible more, it was raising up, intentionally raising up leaders for the church. And one of the other things I love about this passage is that the leaders that they raise up look very different from one another. There is great diversity in this, right? You've got Barnabas and Saul, who are, you know, Jewish backgrounds. Saul, a Roman citizen, so there's some difference there. He highly trained. Barnabas, maybe just a, a good, faithful brother. But look who else is there. There's Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger meaning dark, meaning that this was, a, this was his skin was, he was a brother, okay? He, his skin was darker. He's from Africa right? This is, and you're thinking, how did that guy get to Antioch? Remember Antioch is a metropolitan city, people coming and going? And so they didn't go, well, I'm not that guy. He's African. No, they're like this guy. There's some leadership potential. Also, who do you see? Lucius of Cyrene. This is like a Greek, Greek name, a double Greek name. I don't know what the equivalent is. I'm going to say some last name. It's going to be offensive to somebody ethnically, so I'm not going to do that. But just the, everybody knew this is a Greek dude, right? Just very Greek, uh, very different from uh, Simeon, very different from Paul. And then my favorite, Manaan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Right? So, this is a Jewish nobleman who was probably like grew up with Herod. Yeah, and you're like, I didn't think Herod was great for us. No, he wasn't. He's not great. And yet, somehow, this guy gets, they, they meet him, he becomes a Christian, and they say, Yeah, this guy, Herod's friend. He's gonna be a leader in the church, right? One of the things that's beautiful about this is it's not just one type of leader that look one way, act one way, talk one way. These are, this is a diversity of leaders that appear out of those who are being saved. Now, what's very important to recognize is that this does not happen by accident. It's not as though Paul and Barnabas are sort of waiting around, like just waiting, like, well, I guess we'll just keep praying and then a leader will appear, you know, out of nowhere. Boop, like here's a leader. No, they, they are intentionally training and instructing the church, uh, look at Acts 11.26. It says this, For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Right, And some of that teaching was probably just helping people understand what it means to follow Jesus, but some of that teaching was very likely, by implication, how to lead like Jesus. How to grow as a servant leader in the mold of Jesus Christ. And last thing to notice about this church, this did not take, because you, you look at that and you think, okay, how long should that take for Paul and Barnabas to raise up some elders, you know, and other leaders so that the church would be self-sufficient without them? And I'd be like, eh, just spitballing here, but like a decade, maybe a 10 years, 20 years, something like that. And it says that they were with the church for a, I don't like how Luke says it, for a whole year. And you're like, A year? Yeah, man, so some of these guys went from becoming Christians to being discipled to being a key leader, maybe an elder, even within a year possibly. Maybe a year to two is the time frame here. Here's the the thing. This is a mark of the radical grace of God. These leaders in Antioch are the mark of a radical grace of God, right? You've got, you've got a guy, Menaean, who was, who was probably rich and powerful and hooked up with Herod and could just do that for the rest of his life. God changes his heart. All of a sudden, he's like, man, I want to be a servant leader in the church. You've got Paul, the apostle, right? Probably the, the foremost rising scholar of Judaism, zealous to persecute the church. Jesus meets him, stops him, shows him amazing grace, changes him, and all of a sudden all he wants to do is go wherever God's called him to do, go, go wherever God's called him to go and preach Jesus, right? You got, you got Simeon, maybe he wants to go back home to Africa. No, he says, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be part of this, right? Th- this, is, this is just God's fingerprints all over this, but there was intentionality behind it, from the church as well. So here's the point. An Antioch church is a church regularly training disciples to be servant leaders. And I think the expectation is that that we we want as many as possible who God has called to be servant leaders at various levels of the church and the community. We want to equip them to be servant leaders. Now, I am one of those people that seemed a very unlikely uh, late teens leader, Right? I was a, a nerd, my social skills were low, and, um, and my fashion choices were questionable. And so the, I, I remember doing an internship when I was uh, 19 at a church, uh, a large church that, that was out in the D.C. area, and as part of this internship, I was on a creative team that was helping put on a singles conference, right? And it was great. I loved being part of this, this singles team, and mostly my role was to do this, to get the coffee, I, I had a number of coffee orders from the team. I was there. I would get the coffee. I wasn't particularly good at it. Um, there was some soy milk fiascos. Uh, soy was put in the wrong coffee. Uh, words were exchanged. You know, I, I'm just trying, like, I'm not good at this. I'm not even good at the coffee, but I'm there. I'm trying to serve. I'm running things down. I'm, I'm picking things up. I'm trying to do my best. And after a few months, uh, one, the, the, the pastor who was leading the singles conference. They had a big meeting. They had to make some budget decisions. And so he said, listen. Um, there's this crazy counseling case that just came up. I'm not going to be able to go to the meeting. So, uh, and, and I could tell he was trying to come up with a plan. And so he looks at us in the room, and he goes, so Ricky's going to lead the meeting. And my thought was, who's Ricky? <laughs> and then I thought, he's looking at me, but surely... Not this Ricky. This is not the Ricky that's going to lead the meeting. And so we had like five, ten minutes before the meeting. I'm not joking. We had like five or ten minutes before the meeting. He walked me through. Okay, here's the agenda. It's already set. Here are the three decisions you need to do. Uh, this one guy sometimes will be a little negative. So I want you to, you know, here's the way you, you kind of lead him through that. And then this other person is probably going to weigh in with the crazy idea. So here's how you lead through that. And, and just like, you got this man. All right, man. Let me know how it goes. And then he just took off. And I, I, he wasn't totally insane. I'd been in the meetings. You know, I... I, I but for me, I thought, this is not what I signed up for. I signed up to be a coffee guy. That's the level of church I'm going to serve at. I'm the coffee guy in the church. If somebody needs a coffee, I will get you a coffee, man. I did not sign up to make budget decisions for a singles conference, right? And, it, and, and yet, the thing I love about this pastor, his name was Eric. Love, the thing I love about Eric is he was just like, you know what? I'm not just going to build this team into me. I'm going to raise up other leaders. I'm going to give this guy a shot. I'm going to see what happens, right? And, and that is, that's what I want you to see. That's the culture that must have been going on in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were not just, hey, we're going to build this all into me. They're like, hey, Lucius, you did a great, that was some great input in the Bible study Tuesday. How do you feel about leading a Bible study next Tuesday? You know, Manan, man, when you ministered and prayed for that couple, that was awesome. There's actually three more couples that could use that kind of ministry. What do you think about joining me as we go minister to those couples, right? They they are bringing people along to become servant leaders in the mold of Jesus. So what does that mean for us as a church? Well, it means that training leaders, raising up servant leaders is and should be our culture. We want to make it normal. I think over the years, you know, as I've been at the church, sometimes even I can drift into having a mindset where it's just like, well, you know, hopefully some leaders appear this year at at a church, you know, just like, just pop out of nowhere. And sometimes every once in a while, God blesses us with somebody like that. But more, I think our culture should not just be waiting for a super leader to arrive, but rather saying, hey, if you're leading a CG, who around you? Could you ask to lead a Bible study and help learn to lead a CG? We did this in, in, in my community group. A number of our guys led over the summer. I didn't lead any Bible studies over the summer. I was supposed to lead one, and then I gave Drew like 20 minutes notice, and he did a great job with it. And, and, and this is just, you know, this is, the, this is what I think should be happening. Our Sunday team leads. Um, I love seeing, is she here? Abby, I love seeing Abby because I was dropping my kids off, and Teresa was telling me that I think this is right, Abby, that you're our youngest, te- like, uh, class lead, Right? and the 9 a.m. service, which is awesome. I'm sorry I'm embarrassing you, but I just loved it because I, I, I was praying about this stuff and raising up people, and I hand my kids off at Happy, and I'm just like, yes, that is awesome. That is what the church should be doing. We want to celebrate those things and lean into those things. Um, so that's, so if we think of, okay, what's under the hood of the church? One of the things that must be pumping and going back and forth is, is a, a training culture that raises up leaders. All right, next Mark, is interdependence. Now, one of the things you see in Acts 11, 13 is a countercultural approach to church-to-church relationship. Um, the churches here are not just living kind of in their own uh, walls, inside their own walls. I think sometimes churches, and, and I can even be guilty of this as a pastor, we, we, we're like, hey, we don't want anybody to leave. We, we just want to keep everybody we have. We're, we're very, you know, busy with our own stuff. like, Hey, this church may be having a crisis. Like, great, we'll say a prayer for you, but we're busy right here. But that's not the approach. That's not the life that these churches are living. Look, you see this in three places. First, you see this in the way that they practically just support each other. Uh, In verse 22, the church in Jerusalem, by the way, a church undergoing persecution, a church undergoing hardship a church in Acts 12 who loses one of their key leaders to death and has another one jailed, that church says, Barnabas, one of our best guys, you're going down to Antioch, right? They they generously lend what they have, give what they have to Antioch. And then Paul goes to Tarsus. Now, the implication is that there's a church in Tarsus and Paul is a part of it. And listen, man, if we had Apostle Paul here, I think all of us would be like, should Paul stay here or go to another church? We'd be like, let's have him stay here. You know, if he comes to you for counsel, hey, you know, Barnabas brought me this opportunity. He's asking for help in Antioch. I would be like, you know, Paul, I've got a word for you. It's no, just don't go. Is that a word from the Lord? I don't know, but it's a word from me. Just just stay here. I would like to keep the guy who wrote most of the New Testament or is gonna write most of the New Testament just here. They don't do it. They let him go. They send him to Antioch. And then, here's what I love. Then Antioch lives this culture out In return, right, in Acts 27 to 30, they get this prophetic word that there's going to be a famine everywhere. They know this. They know the church in Jerusalem, frankly, is poorer than they are. Antioch is a financially wealthier church. Jerusalem, great theological riches. Not a lot of money. You gotta remember, most of these guys were fishermen, blue-collar dudes, poor people, right? They, there's a lot of widows that they're caring for, and so they in Antioch they proactively gather money up and send it to this church in Jerusalem. Now that's countercultural for us in America. It's like, man, if you're doing well, things are going well. You need all the money there, man. You got to keep investing in staff, and you got to keep investing in programs. You got to build a bigger, nicer building. You got to get the lasers. You got to get the fog, you know, whatever. And we got to we got to build this thing up. And they're like, nah, man, we're good. Send the money to Jerusalem. They need it. You see that, that back and forth. J- Jerusalem gives what they have. Antioch gives what they have. They do it together. Second thing you see is in the area of mission. They're working with one another in the area of mission. Now, here's what I love. At this moment in Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas, they get identified and they're deployed. They're sent out. If I'm the guys in Jerusalem, I'm kind of having my hand up and I'm going, hey, man, if Barnabas is going anywhere, I think he's coming back to Jerusalem. Like, I don't know if you heard, but James just got killed. This would be a great time to get another really strong leader, right? Or the guys in Tarsus could be like, oh, man, like, great. If Paul, oh, Paul's leaving Antioch, perfect. We can't wait to welcome him back. Actually, he's going on a missionary church planning thing way away from you, right? That, that's what's happening. These churches are generously saying, man, okay, the best thing for the sake of the gospel, these two guys go. And the church in Antioch stays connected to the mission in Acts 14 to 27. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just tell you that that Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch. And it says that they declared all that God had done. They gathered the church together and then they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So Antioch doesn't even just send these guys off and be like, all right, peace out, you're dead to us now, good luck out there. They're keeping in touch with Paul and Barnabas. They're returning and sharing the stories, right? They're united in mission together. The the implication is also that there's financial partnership going on with this missionary endeavor. And last, the other place you see it is theology. These churches are together practically, missionally, and theologically. One of the things that happens is Paul and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem and there's a controversy that arises, a key theological controversy. And so you read in Acts 15:2, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Meaning this, that that Antioch's throwing a flag on the field and saying, hey, man, we got a theological issue to decide. We got to work through this together. And they, representing Antioch and these other churches, go and travel to Jerusalem, and together they work on preserving the the, the faith and making sure there's a strong theological foundation. Here's what I think you should see in Antioch and in the relationship of these churches. We often talk about how Jesus died for us. When we think of us, though, we usually think of individually, right? Like Jesus died for me. He didn't just die for me. He died for us. He died for this, this. But he didn't di- just die for this cross of grace in El Paso. He died for a family of church families, right? A body of church bodies. Here, and, and with Pastor JP in India, and our friend, my friend Nathan in, in the UK, all to, to Carlos, and, and to Andres in Guadalajara, like all of those guys, that, that is what Christ died for. People from every tribe, tongue, and language, and people group united as churches, as the body of Christ. That's what he died for. That's what he longs to see. This unity lived out. So here's the point. Antioch is an interdependent church. And so must we be. We do not want to be a lone ranger church. I was talking to Chuck uh, about the beginning of the church. And you know, Chuck would joke about how you know the beginning of the church, the pastors of the church, even uh, members of the church, they, they weren't super developed theologically. They didn't know all you know, this stuff. But they, they knew one thing from reading the book of Acts. They knew that churches were not supposed to do life on their own. And so even 40 years ago, they went out and were like, man, we got to find a family of churches. we got to find uh, people to partner with in the gospel. And so uh, for the last number of decades, we've been part of a family of churches. It's had a number of names over the years, but now it's called Sovereign Grace Churches. Uh, I think it's a good move. We started out as uh, people of destiny, which uh, definitely sounds a little bit like a cult um, and definitely kind of front loads us and what we're going to do. We're a people of destiny, right? Uh, and then over the years, as God's matured us, we're like, you know, maybe we should highlight God's grace instead. Maybe that should be kind of the first thing. So we've made that move. I think we're it was a good move. And and yet we have seen God's sovereign grace over the many years. Now, we've seen in, in partnership with other churches that partnership is hard. There can be unity, a disunity. There can be controversy. There can be suffering. Sometimes you suffer with others uh, in a way that you're like, man, well, I don't even think I want to enter into what's happening over there, but but. And as gospel partners, I'm going to enter into what's happening over there. We continue to do it, church, because we believe it's biblical and believe it's worth it. We, we are um, committed to gospel partnership. And even if, like, we wake up tomorrow and our family of churches is gone, we as a church would want to live out this conviction no matter what. We'd find another group of churches or another, or another, we would just keep partnering because we believe this is what God has done. Now, Maybe if you've not been here for a while, you're wondering, what does that even look like? I don't understand. I understand, you know, acts, but what does it look like practically among our family of churches? Well, let me give you one example. So over 30 years ago, we sent a family called the Richardsons out of our church to Phoenix. And... Trey Richardson was one of our absolute best. He, he turned down multiple job offers from IBM to move him to other places. He kept taking pay cuts to stay in El Paso. Uh, and yet the one thing that finally did move him was a church that needed another pastor. Seemed like his gifts matched. He moves out there. He helps establish and strengthen this church. But along the way, that church developed some more leaders. And one of those leaders, his name was Derek. And he ended up moving to Tucson and becoming a pastor of our sister church now in Tucson. And so Derek begins training up other leaders. And he disciples a young man named Kyle. And Kyle, as much as Derek wanted to keep him, Kyle had a burden for church planting. And so Derek generously sent him on to Santa Ana. And Kyle is a good friend of mine now, planted in a wonderful church in Santa Ana, and that church now has Kyle's developed another elder there, and they're hoping to plant into Anaheim Colony in California, right? That is the kind of thing that only happens when interdependent churches work together to advance the mission. That's what we want to continue to do. So what does this mean for us? It means this, that, that we want to live our local church life, not just alone in isolation, but with other churches. We want to know what's going with our, on with our friends, Carlos and Abelardo and and, and uh, the other guys in Juarez, in right? We want to know what's going on with Hellman and West El Paso. We want to know what's going on with JP. Maybe if you're new here, you're like, man, you keep talking about this Indian guy, JP. Was he a member here at some point? Do we know him? Does anyone know him? Nope, we're just God. partners with them, and we're sending a bunch of money to him in India to help him start a gospel, by God's grace, a gospel family of churches in India, right? This is what we're meant to be about. All right, now let me end with this, which I think is most relevant to all of us. We want to be given to training, given to interdependence, but also given to -to one-to-one ministry, because I don't want us to have the impression as a church that what matters ultimately is just whatever the leaders do. That's not true. What you see in in Acts is one-to-one ministry is one of the things that powered the church and drove it forward, right? Remember that the people who planted the church in Antioch, none of them were Paul, none of them were Barnabas, that none of them were prominent. In fact, Jesus Fernando in his commentary on Acts says this, we are only told where they come from, which suggests that no one emerged as prominent among them. Right, So when Barnabas gets down there, he's looking for who's in charge here. They're like, I don't, is someone supposed to be in charge? I don't know. right? That, that nobody It's just one-to-one ministry. And as Jesus Fernando continues and says this, this great work was done by ordinary Christians who went and shared the gospel. In fact, much of the growth of the church must have happened through such people as should be the case today. Right, We don't get a full picture of the kind of ministry going on one-to-one in Antioch. But in Acts 2, we do get a picture of the one-to-one ministry of the Jerusalem church. And the Jerusalem church's ministry, I think we're meant to see this is the kind of thing every time the gospel hits a city. This is the kind of thing happening in Antioch and in a city in Antioch and in Crete and in, you know, wherever else. This is what's happening. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And you might think, okay, well, then, great, all we need is some apostles and leaders, right? That's how the church advances. No. Right? So there was leadership, but, but among all the members of the church, they were learning, they were praying, they were helping one another financially, they were hosting people in their homes, they were out in the community telling people about Jesus, right? This is not just a church where it's like, okay, well, we're all going to be here and you're going to lead forward and we'll just kind of cheer you on from the stands, like, yay, great. No, we, we've often said that the church is not a performance where the performers are on the stage and everybody else is sort of in the audience and they're like, oh, that was a good sermon, that was a a good song, that was nice, right? Church is a halftime huddle in which we go over the game plan, which is the Bible, and then talk about how the Lord is going to send us out during the week to do his work of ministry. An Antioch Church is a church in which one-to-one ministry thrives. And one of the things I think that we're meant to learn church from the pandemic of the last year is this that one-to-one ministry is essential to what it means to be a church. I don't know uh, listen I I thank God for the six to eight weeks or whatever it was that we just did live stream and everybody was at home. And I know that not everybody has been able to come back or not everybody was able to come back for a while. I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but what I'm trying to say is this. When we were just here with like a little camera right there, there's a camera right there, nobody here, it was like me and John and another guy, I'm grateful that hopefully people were encouraged spiritually, but whatever that was, it was not church, (laughs) It was some kind of weird performance theater thing because this is what matters. Uh, Colin Hanson, writing in the New York Times, reflects on his own church having to not be able to meet and then be able to meet. He says this, the body of Christ or church isn't the same when you separate its members. The hands and feet and ears and eyes need to be assembled for this body to work for the good of all. Christians Need to hear the babies crying in church. Amen, church? Amen. We need that. They need to see the reddened eyes of a friend across the aisle. They need to chat with the recovering drug addict who shows up early but still sits in the back row. They need to taste the bread and wine. They need to feel the singer's crescendo toward the assurance of hope in what our senses can't yet perceive. And this last line I love is a dad. He just says, my daughter needs to know the church members. Church, may, may one of the things we take out of the last year, year and a half, be this, that, that none of us will ever consider the one-to-one ministry of the body on Sunday and during the week as inessential to our lives. This, this is not just, okay, the church is not just, okay, when the lights go on and when the lights go off, and that's the beginning and end of church. Church is showing up beforehand. Church is meeting afterwards. Church is some guy inviting somebody to lunch that looks lonely, right? This this is what it means to be a church full of one-to-one ministry. And that is one of the engines that drives the church forward to mission. What, what I hope you see is this. if If training is not happening in the church, the church is not going to have any leaders to send out or leaders to stay with the church uh, to, keep, to keep it strong and help it to grow. If, if interdependence isn't happening, we're not going to be in partnership. We're not going to have a heart for the world or the world beyond ourselves. Nor the strength, theologically, missionally, practically, to advance the gospel. And if one-to-one ministry is not happening, the church will not be healthy. Here is the reality. The church sends what it is. The church only sends what it is. We're not gonna, we can't be an unhealthy church in these areas and then be like, well, this guy will be great and we'll send him and it'll hopefully go fine. No, we send what we are. So here's where I wanna end. I had a totally different ending in the first service, so you guys get a totally different ending. It's like a, it's like a choose your own adventure like in the second service, totally different ending because I really felt like God impressed something on my heart as, as I was wrapping up the first service and it's this. What powers the church is its members, right? But what powers the members is the living spirit of Christ in them. Even though we should receive this as a charge, that, man, we want to, as Cross of Grace, train leaders. We want to partner with other churches. We want to do one-to-one ministry. We must remember that it's not ultimately just up to us. Jesus gives us this promise in Matthew sixteen eighteen: I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The reason one-to-one ministry works is that the living Christ inside one Christian, he enables that Christian to bring life-giving, hope-stirring encouragement to another Christian and and brings, in a sense, their dead-in-heart to life. Right? What, what makes it possible for one Christian to share the gospel with somebody in the community and that actually work is that the Spirit of God goes before them. The Spirit of God using that Christian and awakening that, that new believer to life in Christ. Right? The, the only reason this works is that Jesus is the one building his church. That's the only reason that the church in Antioch could even work. Why would Manaan, a lifelong friend of Herod, care give a rip about what happens to the church? Jesus changing his heart. Why would Paul the apostle, the guy hunting down Christians and inflicting bodily harm on them, suddenly be sent out to start churches? The living Christ. That's why this is precious. And that's why we can have confidence, church, that no matter what this next year brings or the year after that brings, we know one thing. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, let's raise up some leaders. Let's work with other churches. Let's minister to one another. Amen. You stand and let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, I just feel in this moment that the, the grace in this room, in the Christians that are gathered here, God, what a gift. What a gift that you would take a Pharisee kid, church kid like me, and change his heart, a selfish kid, and make him want to even care about other people. God, what grace that you would take a guy like Vince that was once an addict, and all of a sudden turn his life around to the point where he preaches the gospel in this pulpit what What grace in in, in the fact that the teachers in our kids ministry were once far away from you, and now they 're right now, as we speak, giving the gospel hope that changed their lives to the kids that they're in front of. God, what what amazing grace that the greeters on Sunday that you have welcomed into your family when they were far from you now welcome other people. What amazing grace that the people on this worship team who once were... Their, their direction of enthusiasm and praise was far from you. All of a sudden it's been reoriented, redirected, and now they, they sing to you. God, this church is a living, breathing miracle of grace. Oh, Lord, help us to treasure it. Help us to never take it for granted. And, Lord, I do pray, I do pray that we would be a healthy church, a church that that you help us to be something unique and full of grace in a dark, lifeless world. Lord, may we be able to send what we are by the grace of God to our city and our region and to a world that so desperately needs it. Amen.